and welcome to the Mason Hayes Internal Law Podcast. So we're hearing an awful lot in the press recently about um, international data transfers and the outcome of the Schrems 2 decision. Maybe you could talk us through what's happening there, please, Oshin. Yeah, no problem. So the Schrems 2 decision came out last July, and it, do- it does a couple of things. Um, at a high level, it invalidated the Privacy Shield decision, uh, which was a framework that was used to move data from Europe to the U.S., But perhaps more importantly, the decision upheld standard contractual clauses, which are another mechanism which is used to move data from Europe to other jurisdictions. They're effectively a form of uh, standard contract that you can sign. Um, So that's useful. So that effectively means that the SHREMS 2 decision does not restrict data transfers. There's still ways of transferring data following the decision. What the decision also did, and this is the, the bit that sort of caused some consternation, shall we say, is that the court held that if you're going to use model clauses or standard clauses, um, you have to look at where the data is going and you have to get comfortable that the recipient jurisdiction, so for example, the US, um, provides adequate protection for personal data when you combine the local laws and also the additional protections that are in the standard contracts. So the upshot effectively is that you can still move data around following SHRAMS 2, but uh, the amount of friction has has increased. So what's actually been going on in practice? So that was sort of, that's the theoretical legal part. What are we actually seeing on the ground? Well, a couple of different things. Uh, first up, it will not come as, as a surprise to learn that data is still flowing freely. So, you know, companies have not stopped sending data to the United States. Uh, they have not stopped sending data to, to India or really anywhere else. But what has happened is, is that there's been sort of a series of responses that have happened in a couple of different areas uh, where different stakeholders are trying to manage this judgment. And I, I kind of think you can divide this into three buckets. You've got what business is doing, you've got what regulators are doing, and then you've got what the politicians are doing. So we'll focus on business first. Uh, businesses are still using standard contractual clauses, but what they are also doing is they're trying to bolster those standard contractual clauses with a couple of additional safeguards. So first up, they are... Uh, they're effectively doing due diligence on the recipient jurisdictions. So we're seeing a lot of cases now where uh, U.S. multinationals that have Irish operations are preparing internal legal assessments, basically looking at whether or not the data is still protected when it goes to the United States. Uh, Those were initially being done a lot for U.S. transfers. Increasingly, we're seeing uh, businesses do it for transfers elsewhere. Uh, Another thing we're seeing a lot of is um, kind of increased contractual negotiation and big B2B deals around around data transfer safeguards. So historically, what would often happen is that you would just have the standard clauses, you'd annex them to the agreement, everyone would sign happy days. Uh, What we're seeing now is that um, a lot of customers, particularly conservative uh, European institutions and European businesses, aren't happy with just signing the standard clauses they want their their service providers, particularly their American partners, to provide more contractual comfort around what happens if if um, if there's a problem with the data transfer. So this involves such things as uh, giving various uh, contractual commitments that the recipient isn't subject to certain U.S. national security laws. That's one thing I've seen a lot of recently. Another practice is. Um, increasing the liability caps and agreements. So we're seeing European customers start to insist on uh, the ability to get greater amounts of compensation if, if something goes wrong. So that's the business side of things. Um, on the regulatory side of things, we're seeing um, a mixture of, uh, you know, well, it depends on the day of the week. Sometimes you see very robust action, other days you see nothing. So there is still litigation in Ireland around um, how data can be transferred. 
But beyond that, we haven't seen much in the way of actual substantive enforcement action. We've seen a lot of very aggressive guidelines come out of European regulators, but leaving aside some proceedings in Ireland, there hasn't been much in the way of actual enforcement or any action being taken really to shut down uh, data transfers. So that's the regulatory side. And then on the political side, finally, um, the big thing that is that the European Commission is really trying to solve the Schrems 2 case. Um, they've proposed new, new standard clauses that are designed to provide additional protections over and above the old ones. And we're also aware of talks between the Europeans and the Americans around adopting a new privacy shield framework. So really, on the political side, there seems to be a lot of impetus to try and solve this problem. But um, at the moment, transfers are still taking place, albeit with a little bit more friction. Okay, that's that's <clears throat> deeply complex by the sounds of it. And I presume then uh, people or companies operating this sphere um, dealing with these issues, the last thing they need is another headache thrown in, um, which I believe will be a result of Brexit and you know whether the UK will get an adequacy decision or not, and how this is all going to play out. Is this is this really going to be another another Schrems type scenario for people? Okay, good question. Um... Brexit has caused a lot of complications, and unfortunately, data transfers is another area of such complication. So with Brexit, I think you can kind of look at three, there's sort of three different issues going on here. Um, the, first point, the first point to note with Brexit is that you now have the European, uh, European GDPR and you have the imaginatively titled UK GDPR. So you now have two separate sets of parallel laws in uh, Ireland and the rest of the EU and the UK. Uh, what this means in practice is that there's a lot of duplication of regulatory requirements. So, for example, if you have if you're an Irish business that uh, you know deals with UK customers, you could now be subject to both Irish law and UK law, and you may have to comply with both sets of requirements. Now, the requirements are generally the same, but there are some technical differences, like the requirement perhaps to appoint a um, a representative in the UK and perhaps to pay fees to the UK regulator. So the first thing is just more red tape. Um, second big issue, which you alluded to, Brian, is the whole issue of transfers and are you getting data into the UK? Um, so once the UK is what's called a third country, um, you cannot transfer data to the UK without ticking some compliance box, uh, such as using model clauses. Now, what happened uh, politically, because like a lot of these transfers issues are ultimately political, um, the uh, in, as, as part of the Brexit cooperation agreement, um, a stay of execution was granted, which effectively means that you can still transfer data from Ireland or other European jurisdictions to the UK freely until uh, probably until the 1st of July of this year, though uh, if one of the parties objects that that extension is only until the 1st of May. Um, so right now you can still send data to, to the UK. Um, and then the, but that could change in the middle of the year. And then the final big point here is, well, what's the long-term solution? Um, there is uh, an attempt to forge a political compromise. Uh, that is in the form of what's called an adequacy decision, which is effectively a formal decision from the European Commission saying that the UK provides adequate protection for data. Um, this week, the uh, Commission has basically announced that it's minded to issue such a decision and it's engaging in a consultation process. Um, but I think what's going to be really interesting is uh, whether or not that UK adequacy decision will actually be accepted. Um, the real challenge here, I think, is going to be UK national security law, which in many respects is quite um, 
uh, is quite extensive. And there are certain uh, political segments that would object to an adequacy decision being granted simply because of UK national security law. So it's really more of a political thing right now than a legal one. But uh, I suppose the takeaway is that people are trying to solve for the transfer to the, uh, the UK issue, but longer term, uh, that, that may not happen because um, you know, there's going to be activists who are going to seek to challenge any framework or solution that, that's put in place. Okay, there's a, a lot to um, digest there. Um, you mentioned a little earlier um, enforcement uh, by authorities in the EU. Are there any kind of particular enforcement trends you're seeing at the moment? Uh, there's a few. So again, uh, I'll say there's probably three, three enforcement trends that are, are, are probably worth noting. Uh, the first one, which I would stress, is um, really trying. Re if if you fund your security budget sufficiently, your legal budget and your fines budget will prob can probably be reduced. So what we're seeing on the enforcement side is a lot of the big enforcement actions are targeted at security breaches. So it seems that um, while the GDPR has a lot of different and complex obligations, we're not really seeing fines being levied in, in a considerable way for a breach of the technical requirements. Where we're seeing fines be imposed is really where a company has had a security breach or where they have really gaping security failings. Uh, so that's the first trend. Second trend then is the divergence in approach across Europe. Um, different countries are really taking a different approach to how, how much they're imposing or, what, or how many fines they're imposing rather. Uh, so in Ireland, for example, I think we've had four fines imposed so far. But if you look at other um, countries like Spain, there's been over 170. So there's sort of a divergence in approach between how uh, penal different regulators have been in different markets. And then the final big trend we're seeing is, again, a real divergence in approach in, in the size of fines. So, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of people were scared by the prospect of these 4% of global turnover GDP or fines. Uh, in reality, we have seen nothing like that uh, actually be, really be imposed. Well, there's been one or two small exceptions, but in general, not, nothing that reaches those levels. Um, the majority of fines have been in the, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, um, but we still see regulators disagreeing over how exactly fines are going to be interpreted. So the fines aren't as scary as people initially feared, but quantifying GDPR fines is really a bit of guesswork at present. Okay. One fine that actually did catch my attention recently was um, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner's fine of Twitter for 450000 What was that one all about? Okay, so that was about a security breach, going back to my earlier point around, you know, if you want to avoid fines, you know, fund your security budget. Um, so what happened in that case is Twitter suffered a security breach, uh, but the DPC found that they failed to appropriately notify the DPC in time. So the legal background here is that the GDPR has a breach notification requirement. And what this effectively means is that when a company has a breach, they have to notify the regulator within 72 hours of becoming aware of the breach. So that's really what they were caught out for here. Uh, what's really interesting about this decision is, um, the, is the approach the DPC took when it came to assessing when Twitter was deemed to be aware of the breach. So the background to this is that uh, there, were, there are two different Twitter companies. There is Twitter Ireland, and then there is Twitter Inc., which was in the US and San Francisco. In this case, Twitter Inc. became aware of a breach, but due to a number of uh, internal failings, there was a delay before Twitter Ireland, which was the data controller, was made aware of the breach. As soon as Twitter Ireland became aware of the breach, it, it promptly notified the regulator as well within 72 hours. But the DPC found that because of that process breakdown between Twitter Inc. and Twitter Ireland, Twitter Ireland was deemed to be on knowledge, uh, de deemed to be aware of the breach, 
um, before it actually became aware. So the upshot here effectively is that once Twitter Inc. became aware, Twitter Ireland was deemed to be aware, even though in reality, Twitter Ireland wasn't aware. So it's quite an aggressive um, approach taken by the regulator here. And I think the, the real takeaway for companies is that if you outsource part of your data processing to another company and that other company uh, messes up in some respect when it comes to telling you about the breach, uh, you could be on the hook for that you, uh, because you may not be able to notify within 72 hours. So th this has caused a fair amount of concern because a lot of companies assume that the 72 hours only started when they were actually told about an incident or told about a breach, whereas the DPC is saying that, yes, that's generally the rule, but if you should have been told sooner, you're going to be fixed with that knowledge at an earlier stage. Uh, so it, it's something that's caused a bit of op operational concern for, for some of our clients. Absolutely, I'm sure. And it sounds like um, uh, processing agreements and relationships will be negotiated and managed a lot more heavily from here on in. Um, turning uh, then towards the individual, um, are we seeing any signs at all of individuals bringing actions under GDPR? Okay, it's a good question. So the GDPR has a lot of what I would call pro-plaintive procedural rules. So it almost the legislation is almost designed to incentivize uh, plaintiff litigation following um, data protection incidents. Uh, in particular, uh, the GDPR allows individuals to sue before their home courts. And uh, it also expressly says that there's a right to recover for, quote, material and non-material laws. Now, big legal uncertainty that's not yet resolved as well, what's meant by non-material laws. Um, historically, the position in Irish law was that if you wanted to claim for data protection damages, the normal tort rule applied, which effectively means uh, you had to show that you had actually suffered a loss. The mere fact that your rights had been violated in and of itself was not sufficient to claim compensation. So what we have seen is that there's been a number of cases filed across Europe uh, where there have been you know, small breaches or technical violations of individuals' rights and compensation is, is being sought for those. Uh, in Ireland, there's been a handful of cases, but they've all been kind of filed in the lower courts. We don't yet have any controlling decisions on the point. But there's some interesting trends when you look to Europe. And the big thing that jumps out at me when you, you, you look at the cases is that uh, judges seem to be quite concerned that um, the GDPR could become another area for compensation, uh, sort of a compensation culture type claim. And there seems to be a real relux reluctance to make it very easy for plaintiffs to, to get damages. So what we're seeing from the courts, and there was a decision from the, the Dutch Supreme Court on this point, um, is that the courts are really saying that if you want to claim GDPR compensation, you can, but you have to point to some actual harm or suffering that you've suffered. So that may not be financial, it could be, you know, mental distress or the like, but you still have to plead it and you still have to prove it. So I guess the, the, the takeaway here is that, um, you know, these claims are starting to come in, but the courts are, you know, are imposing a bit of a burden for plaintiffs. They're requiring the burdens, uh, the plaintiffs actually prove loss uh, before they'll, they'll award compensation. And even when compensation is awarded, it tends to be in the hundreds to very low thousands region. So in any individual case, the actual amount of compensation will be quite low. Listen, thanks very much, Oshin. That was a highly informative session. And um, thank you for all of your help. For more on our events and podcasts, you can visit mhc.ie. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.